0: This podcast is brought to you by UConnect, the creator of the first all-in-one virtual career center. Scale your impact and engage more students with a platform that puts all of your career resources in one place. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Career Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Jean Rhee and Jessica Best. Both from the University of Oregon Lundquist College of Business, Jean is the executive director of More Career Services, and Jessica is the director of Career Strategy for More Career Services, and that's More M O H R. In this episode, I talk with Jean and Jessica about how to make career services more of a requirement and move away from the traditional opt-in model. Jean and Jessica share several specific ways they're doing this, including how they partnered with faculty to embed career-related assignments into several core business classes. They share what those assignments look like, how they built the program, how they got buy-in from faculty, and more. Hope you enjoy the episode. So thank you both for being here.
1: Hey, thanks for having us. We're excited to be here.
2: Yeah,
0: glad to be here. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you both. And I'm excited to talk to you two today about how to make career services kind of more of a requirement and maybe moving away from that traditional opt-in model. So I know this is top of mind for a lot of career leaders these days, and it's been top of mind for me even because... Two of our past guests actually said something about this a few episodes ago when I asked if they uh, had a magic wand and could change anything about career services. Megan Baeza and Mary B. Merritt, both from the University of Texas, Permian Basin, they both said that they would make career services a requirement for all students somehow. So I'm excited to dig into how you're making career services more of a requirement for your students there in the Lundquist College of Business at the University of Oregon. Before I get into that, though, is there anything else either of you would like to add about yourselves, your backgrounds, or your roles in the Lundquist College of Business?
1: Meredith, I was actually going to just mention about uh, more career services. I think a lot of people sometimes don't understand or know where does that name come from. So just wanted to, to share that Jay and Kim Moore are a couple committed ducks and donors who've contributed quite a lot to the college and and obviously to the Career Center. They really um, have a heart for student success and yeah, so I just want to explain where the name comes from. Yeah, on top of that, I think they're just lovely people. So um, hopefully give some context to the name.
0: I think we need more of those kind of folks in, in the career services and higher ed world. Absolutely. <laughs> Jessica, anything else you'd like to add?
2: No, I think I'd love to talk about the program and get, get into it. So let's go.
0: All right, let's do it. So first, I'm going to kind of kick us off with a question I have been asking all of our guests on this, on this podcast, and that is, what does Career Everywhere mean to you?
1: So to me, career everywhere generates the idea um, that it's a primary focus, career. That's not a nice to have, that it's, it's an imperative. I think a couple other thoughts that come to mind also, that it's a shared responsibility, that it's not just one person, one department, but um, the entire community. I think that's another word that comes to mind, that it's, um, that it's not just the career center, but um, that it's everywhere. And so those are some thoughts that generate for me
2: yeah, absolutely. It's a shared responsibility, shared effort, and also shared sort of joy, like the fun that we're getting to talk to students about what are you doing to explore? What are you engaged with? What kinds of activities have you been learning from? What kinds of classes are you taking? and how are you thinking about that in the larger context of your life and the impact that you want to make in the world once you graduate? Those are great conversations that we can have and anybody can have, right? So if it's somebody in the context of their job working for uh, campus facilities, I mean, you might hear the lawnmower going outside my window here, right? (laughs) A lot of those employment opportunities and different kinds of experiences that students have that they can use to really explore themselves, understand themselves better, and also find a way to make meaningful change in the world once they graduate. And so that career everywhere, it's like, Thinking of how can we connect all of the amazing things that are going on at the university with the larger impact that students are making.
0: Perfect. I love that. I especially love that kind of community angle, making sure that everyone is involved. I think I've said it before on this podcast, but it's like career everywhere is a team sport. Everyone has to be involved. Do your students get terrible career advice from YouTube and TikTok? Give them access to better video content with Candid Career Plus the YouTube of career videos, Candid Career Plus is an expansive video library with thousands of career-focused videos that cover a wide range of topics, interests, industries, advice, and more. And every video is sourced from best-in-class career content creators, including ADP List, Way Up, and many more. Learn more at goyouconnect.com slash candidcareerplus. All right. So now I would love to dig into that program you were mentioning, Jessica, and talk about how you're both making career services, again, more of a requirement for students there in the College of Business. We'll spend a little time discussing, you know, what you're doing, and then we'll really zero in more on the how you're doing it and the why you're doing it. So first, can you just give me a quick overview of what you're doing to make career services more of a requirement?
2: Yeah. So, you know, you asked me background earlier. I'll give you a little snippet here. I've worked here in the College of Business for 15 years. Um, So I've seen a lot of iterations and a lot of different ways that we have tried to connect with students. And we were really finding that we weren't seeing the level of both impact in terms of career outcomes and also sort of engagement in terms of students coming in to meet with us or to work with us along the way that we would we would all love. Right. And so we looked at a lot of different models of ways that we might be able to engage students more. And we had really great support from our dean to and our academic heads and department heads to really sort of make career, this thing that's a long-term, not urgent goal, right? It's important, but it's not urgent, to make that a little bit more urgent. So we also talked to a lot of students who said, you know, we worry about career. We think it's important. We know we're supposed to be doing stuff. But we also know that we won't do it unless you make us do it. So make us do it. So this was sort of the the landscape of where we started, and so we explored a few different models, which we can talk about in a minute if you want. But what we landed on for what was right for us, given the constraints and the context and the other kinds of things that we had built here, was that we would embed career readiness activities into key core business classes. So these are classes that all of our students who graduate with a business or accounting major, all of them will take them. At some point, they're all required. And we spaced them so that we would have a touch point in our BA 101 class, which for people who are going to major in business, usually take that in their first term on campus. That is, you know, fundamentals of business. Right. And then the next time they would see us is in our um, analyzing spreadsheets class, which is BA 240 which is a sophomore level class. So, again, they would have that in their first year, their second year. And then we would see them again in our marketing 311 class. And even though it's a marketing class, all of our business and accounting majors take it. It's a core class. So we're seeing them all there. So what we've done is we've built in sort of bite-sized chunks along the way so that we can, students can engage in that iterative process where they think about their strengths, their interests early on, and then they think about it again later, and they think about it again later after they've had a chance to take classes and get some experience and explore different things. So we have those three touch points. The career readiness activities that we do are different in each of those classes, and they build on each other. So it's not like they're encountering the same thing over and over And they get a chance to do some self-assessment, to work on their personal branding materials like resumes. They get to understand the career search process uh, and how important networking is. They go to an event. They can do practice interviews, right? So there there are a lot of things that we scaffold for them along the way so that when they are looking for that internship and job, they have something to rely on both in terms of confidence, but also in terms of hopefully have some experience up to that point to leverage for that next thing that they want to do.
0: Okay. I love how I think you called it like it's reiterative. Like, you, I know for me, for my learning style, I would need that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just forget it after the first time.
2: And the whole point of education, we want them to be changed by their experience here, right? They're not going to have the same idea of themselves or the world when they start, right? We don't want them to. We want them to revisit it. And really, the required part is that in each of these classes, the activities that they have to do count as a percentage of their grade for that class. So students can choose, just like any other class assignment, they can choose not to do them, right? But there's a consequence to that choice. And also, it's a way for us to signal as a college that we feel this is so essential to your education, that we're embedding it into these core classes and assigning points to it. We're using the incentive that we have trained them to cue into, which is points in a class, right? This is what we think is important and we're assigning value to that. So again, it's one of those things where we can ensure everybody at least has equal access to it and then they can make the choice whether they want to engage in it or not. But we really see very high engagement rates, you know, up in the, 90, in the 90s in terms of how, what percentage of students actually engage in these assignments in their classes.
0: I imagine it's hard to get 90% engagement rates anywhere else.
2: Yeah. And certainly not in any opt-in activities for sure. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm curious what you mentioned. It was kind of bite-sized bits of career development for these assignments. What are a couple examples of assignments students might have to do?
2: Sure, sure. So one of the things that we've been able to do is because we have gotten some great support from donors to invest in some technology platforms, we're able to scale things in a way that we couldn't do before. So to give you an idea, last year, the academic year of 2021 through 2022, which is the last full year we have data for, we ran about 3,000 students through each of these, like these classes combined. About 2,300 of those were in those first and second year classes, so they're early in their career, which is great. But like, let's say we were we were going to ask students to come in and get a resume review. We have five folks who do a portion of their job is dedicated to career advising, right? There's no way we could run all of those students through five live humans, right, to do that. We've gotten some great support through technology platforms to be able to give students the option to come and talk to humans, and we encourage them to do that. And also, if that doesn't work for them, they can access an AI-assisted resume review platform to get feedback on their resume. So it's not just learn about how to write a resume and then you're on your own, to learn about how to write a resume, answer a little quiz about, you know, good resume writing practice, and then create a resume and get feedback on that to improve it to a certain level of competence. So it's either a score through our online tool or filled out a, re- a rubric with our career peer educators, our student advisors, to be able to say, I've achieved a certain level of competence on this resume. So that's one example of what we would do. And, and the resume is a good example, I think, because it, it's that thing that students feel like unlocks opportunity for them, right? Like they feel like they have to have a resume before they can do anything. So by having them have that basic foundation, then they, they feel empowered to go after different kinds of opportunities or experiences.
0: Okay. Yeah, I love that. So I think that's a pretty good overview kind of of, of what you're doing with this program. So now I want to dig into again, the why. So why did you structure these career development assignments this way? Or why did you do it with this more required model versus opt-in?
2: Yeah. So I think what we talked about a little bit before was that we weren't seeing the numbers that we had, we were hoping for, right? So career outcomes, you know, at the time we were seeing, and we were just looking at three months after graduation at the time, about 60% or so of our students, of those who were seeking jobs we're reporting having a job at three months after graduation. That's not what we would want. That's not what we want for our students. That's not what they want for them. And then when we would look at engagement rates with career services, either advising or our events, we were only seeing about 20% of our students in the college were actually engaging with those. Like I looked at over the past year, right? So over the course of one year, only about 20% of our students were engaging with us either in advising or events, which are the main ways that we were engaging at, the point, at that point. And again, like I said, the students said they wanted it, right? Like, we know it's important, but until you make it urgent for us, we're just not going to do it, right? And so that's where, like, having that required part comes in. We looked at a lot of different models of ways that we might do that. And for us, at the time, this is the the model that seemed to work the best. I don't know, Gene, if you want to talk about um, other sorts of reasons or why this is important.
1: Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is Every single institution, they they have requirements for students on a lot of different areas, and certainly on the academic side, right? If you're going to major in something, you want to pursue a degree in something, they have things set up and they tell students, you must do these things in order to graduate you know, with X, Y, or Z. So, you know, there's a precedent, there's a way that we interact with students and engage with them. So I guess the question is, why not on the career readiness side, we have people like Jessica, you know, who has a lot of experience in this area why don't we tap into that knowledge and experience to share with students hey this is what we think is best for you this is what we think you should do and the reality i think is you know this is oftentimes for many of our students the first time that they are really engaging in any kind of career development right i mean high school jobs aside i think many of them this is the first time it is it's hard i mean i don't think i need to tell anyone listening on this to the, to this podcast that you know, finding an internship, finding a job is a difficult thing to do. And, you know, put yourself back into the shoes of, you know, whether it's a traditional student of 18, 19, 20 years old trying to navigate, this. it's it's a challenging thing. It's scary, it's stressful. And I think it's just as humans, when things are difficult, we, I think for the most part, majority of people, they shy away from it, they delay, they procrastinate, they don't want to do it. And so I think taking all that into consideration, and then and I think as Jessica said before, when we were doing our focus groups, the students were like, well, if it's so important, just make us do it. Okay, well, let's try that. Let's see if there's an opportunity to do that. And yeah, really excited about what we have been able to develop and I think some of the you know the outcomes and we can, you know, go and develop a bit more. But just being able to see thousands of students in a year, yeah, it's not a one-on-one appointment, but I think getting students, putting them through some paces of this is what you need to do to prepare yourself. We've been very happy with it, so.
2: Yeah, and I think, Gene, you know, what you're saying also reminded me of a couple points. One is that by embedding it into the curriculum, we're we're telling them they have to take these classes, right? We're also making it very clear that this is for everybody, right? Career services is for everybody. It's not just for people whose parents know to tell them to go in and see career services. It's not just for people who might have that social capital coming in or have somebody, know somebody who can give them an internship, right? Like this is important for everybody and and it's our responsibility as an institution to make sure everybody has access to that. So that's one of the key things about making it a requirement, right? Requirement sounds very sort of like, we impose this on you. And really, it's I like to think of it more as that we are making sure everybody has access to these things, right? Not that they have to do it, but they get to do it, right? And then the other piece I think that's important about the model that we have where we're embedding in existing classes is we're not asking students to register for an additional credit that the, that then they have to pay for and that we're not putting that burden on the students to say, oh yeah, you know, you have to pay for the benefit of being able to have an outcome after school. Like it's a way for the institution to say, it's our responsibility and we are, you know, putting that on us, right? Rather than making you have to pay for it, which also has resource implications, which is a whole different thing. But embedding it in core classes is good for the student because it is iterative and they get to see, see it several times. And also they don't have to pay for additional
1: access to it. And I know Meredith, you connect, Um, I know that you all are, you know, pushing in this direction of equitable outcomes and how to share best practices and how to, you know, thematically get that out there to career services and institutions around the country, around the world. And yes, yeah, J- Jessica was saying like this, think of all the students who cannot attend our evening event in the atrium that we had last week because they have to work. They don't have that choice. And yeah, there are virtual options that we can, that we come up with and, and we have said, But at the end of the day, you know, when we ask our students also, how do you want to engage with a lot of this material and a lot of let's say uh, recruiters and alums in the classroom is if not number one but very high up on the list and so being able to say to to those students like no you don't have to go anywhere else you don't have to attend anything else it's here you're already here and i think that has helped out and will continue to help in terms of equitable access for sure but then how does that translate into equitable outcomes for for lunch college i think that's that's the exciting part
0: yeah, I'm glad we touched on that access point because I think that is so important. Like you said, Jean, that's it's right up our alley here at UConnect and something we're definitely trying to address with our product as well. I also wanted to touch on maybe the scalability side of this program because I am guessing that it's a little easier to reach thousands of students with a program like this than it is to have thousands of one-on-ones. So can we talk a little bit about that scalability element?
1: Scalability for us, I mean, we have a team of, there are 10 of us, and you can kind of split it down. We have um, five folks on on Jessica's team doing a bunch of the the career advising. There are really kind of three and a half of us on the the industry engagement side. You know, she mentioned before, there's no way, I mean, we have, you know, we graduate roughly 650, 700 students a year. I'd love to be able to go to the dean and say, hey, uh, you know, all those students within the college are are coming to see us and beating out the door. Um, but I think the reality is that it would be a challenge to be able to serve all those students in a one-on-one capacity so I think part of our discussion early on was how do we figure that point out and I think this was it's kind of getting into some of the how in terms of designing the program but um, we had a couple different options of how to deliver this and I think it was probably key to being able to influence and getting, you know, some key people on board uh, is showing that, you know, here are some different options and what are the pros and cons with, with doing that. But, you know, having these assignments built into these courses, students can do them. They have access to them. It doesn't interfere with class time. And I think, you know, I'll let Jessica kind of get into the details of it, but, you know, how can we impact all of those students without impacting class time, which, that would have been an absolute deal breaker for our faculty at least, right? Like you can't take their class time. So, you know, this was designed in a way that helped us reach all of those students, explain to them, like you had to do these things, but also help them to understand the different components where so they start to think about them on their own time. So I know, you know, Jessica talks a lot about messaging the students. So yeah, you have to do these things, but like by us, even asking the question, it starts to plant the seed into their minds of, oh, oh, networking, oh, informational interviews, like these are things that I, I should be doing. So I think being able to use technology, I think helps out greatly and, you know, for us having the ability to, you know, we have several technology platforms, but again, thanks to donors who have been able to help pay for those things. You know, how many times do we have platforms and what's the uptake on us? How much are our students using those platforms? And by designing this requirement and embedding the technology platforms into the program, now we're also using those platforms instead of them just sitting on the shelf collecting dust. And I think that's a major issue, I would imagine, I think, for, for a lot of us is you're, you're spending a lot of money on some of these platforms and are they being utilized? And I think that has helped out with scale as well. Jessica, anything that you want to add there.
2: Um, I think the only thing I might add is what we're talking about here are the basic fundamentals, the building blocks that you need. It's necessary but not sufficient. So we're trying to reach at scale to get students up to a certain awareness of the process and awareness of what this, what it might look like for them, and also to start the flywheel. Right? We want to inspire them to get involved and get interested. Earlier, interested earlier and often, because then that makes it a lot more fun. It's less stressful. You don't, you're not carrying the whole burden of your entire four years in college, and then in the last three months, you have to decide how to to convert that into some sort of meaningful but also remunerative work. <laughs> so, doing it early and often. So I think the scale thing is really important, but we're also we also know that it's not enough, and that we're hoping by putting it in earlier that then students are then taking the next steps on their own. And also to give you a little context, we launched this with one class as a pilot in the fall of 2020. So it's still a pretty new program. Um, So we haven't seen the full impacts. We talk a lot about what we hope to see the impacts being, but we we don't necessarily have the data yet because it hasn't had the time for students to work through the entire life cycle of it. But one of the key things that we are doing is making sure that assessment and data collection is a key piece of it built in from the beginning so that we can then have things where we can see the change in student confidence, we can see the change in career outcomes. We can see, you know, what they think of it, and you know, is it something that they would recommend to a friend? And are these things that they would have done otherwise if it hadn't been part of the class? So, building in that data and assessment, I think, is a key piece about the program. And also because it's at such large, large scale, then we have good data that we can look at to iterate and on our end, right, to adjust and to help students understand why this isn't how this will benefit them.
1: I think just, Meredith, if I can just add to that around the data collection, everyone collects career outcomes. And that is at you know graduation, three months, six months, kind of does things a little bit differently. You keep track of that stuff, but you can't really do anything for those students at that point. Like it's already done. Like they've graduated, they've left. And so I think how can career services, like what are the different centers around the country doing to collect data and information that can actually help students in the moment. And I think that's something that Jessica and the team has been able to, like a nut they've been able to crack is through fundamentals. We're asking them to give us that information. They're taking surveys basically once a year for the first three years. And we can track that information for every single student as a first year student, as a sophomore, as a junior. And we can start to to see what sort of trends and what kind of stories our students are, what are they doing in this space? Are informational interviews increasing? Are they applying to more or less internships? And so by having that information in the moment, we can then more quickly pivot to, look, internship application numbers are down, for example. You know, what do we need to do about that? And so that's been a, a big thing is is getting that data now, as opposed to lagging indicators of you know outcomes like that kind of doesn't really help you. I mean, it tells you something, but I think we're all wanting to be able to make more of an impact in immediate term and certainly while the students are still on campus with us. Yeah, that's been an awesome thing that Jessica has been able to do with the team.
0: Yeah, I love that. I hadn't even considered that part, but that's super smart to be pulling that real-time data. It's like another just check in the win column about this program in general. I know it's still pretty new, but Are there any early results or even anecdotal evidence that you're seeing as to how this is being received by students?
2: Oh, yeah. We have lots of data. (laughs) You know, and so we ask them about things like, how much do you agree with this statement? I have a better understanding of my own career journey. And we are getting 85% agree, right? I know the next two steps I can take in my career journey. I have tangible things that I can do next. Again, like 85%. I would recommend this to a friend. So this is a this is the question that we ask across all of our programs in terms of like general satisfaction. Would I inflict this on somebody I care about, right? Like is this something that that I would put my reputation on to recommend to a friend? And keep in mind this is again a compulsory activity. It's not something that they chose to do. It's part of their class. And we're getting numbers of like 77% would recommend it to a friend. So again, when you think about which Again, when I talk to our colleagues who teach, you know, large scale classes and different things, they're like, this is off the charts numbers in terms of satisfaction or or things that they would get, you know, for their, even some of the best teachers in the college are saying this is, these are really great numbers, right? So we see these kinds of things, this feedback from students about the program in general. We also ask the question, what's the likelihood that you would have done these things if they hadn't been part of your class? This is really where the rubber meets the road, right? Like what kind of impact are we making? Are we are we actually getting students to take action and do things earlier than they would have otherwise? And that number is around 70%. It's a little bit, depending on which class you're looking at, that's going to be a little bit more, a little bit less, which is amazing, right? Like you're going to see, there's going to be what, 15% of students who would do these things regardless, even if there were no career services office in the college, right? Like they would do that there's going to be 15% of students who just won't do them because they have so many other things that they're grappling with and so many other pressures that they need to pay attention to. They have other crises going on. There's going to be students who are just not going to engage. But it's that middle 70 60 70% that we're really seeing I think that this kind of intervention can really move the needle for those folks because again it's putting it it's like they know I sh- I know I should be doing it, but until it's in my class and it's it's made urgent in the system that I use to identify what's important and urgent, I'm not going to do it. So once it's there, I'll do it, right? And then then we again hope to see that spinning up into oh, and that means maybe I'll join a club, and then maybe I'll take on a leadership role, and then I'll maybe I'll you know engage in this part time job, right? So that's where we are going. Where we're hoping to see that that over time the engagement with career fundamentals will then lead to other kinds of things like. Higher numbers of students doing informational interviews, higher numbers of students doing informational interviews earlier, right, in their academic career, those kinds of things.
1: One thing that's sort of tangentially related, Meredith, is we're wanting to do a better job of how do we disaggregate data based on ethnic groups, backgrounds, and we're nowhere near where we want to be. And I think it was just instead of getting paralyzed with, and now I'm talking about myself, like I, it's hard to understand like even where to start, but I think let's just get started in using demographic data and how do we start to measure who are the students that are coming to see us relative to that? So if 20% of the population is from X group and we're seeing 15%, then hey, we need to improve on that. And so I think with this program specifically, you know, if we're gathering a lot of information, gathering a lot of data, data in this, how can that help to inform us at a more granular level about our student populations and the different segments of student populations and how we can be helping them even further. And that's, you know, that's a whole nother area that we were wanting to push into. And yeah, if you, if maybe that's a podcast for you, if you can find someone that's doing excellent work in that area, I'd love to, to hear that.
0: Okay. Yeah, I love that. And I love hearing that the early results have been so encouraging so far. I imagine that's validating to you and your team as you continue this work. So now I kind of want to talk a little bit about the how you built all of this. How did you go about building this program? I imagine it was a pretty uh, big project.
1: I think first, just to be clear that there was a lot of work and a lot of people that kind of brought us to the point where we were able to launch Fundamentals. And from the different programs and the way that we worked with students, even one-on-one workshops, the sort of the the reputation of, of career services. Over the years, and I think it helped. What's the word? Sort of clear the runway or smooth that path for us to be able to launch something when we did. So I just wanted to make sure that that's known, right? Like, there's a lot of work that went into things before this program was launched, and there's a lot of people involved. You know, it's higher education. I, yes, of course, lots of people are involved in that, and but I think um, there was an opportunity from. Uh, the dean that was here, Sarah Nutter. So she was our previous dean. And she had made a comment one day around, well, you know, maybe we just need to make things required. And, you know, it's at that moment, it's like, okay, well, the students are saying that. And, you know, the dean is wanting to push in that. So how, like, the iron's hot. Well, I think we need to strike. And so uh, then it was a series of conversations, uh, you know, with, Various associate deans, and hey, how can we make this a reality? And getting some ideas, and and then I think we got to a point where hey, here's a proposal, and it was a you know, five page document, four page document of why are we doing this? How does it help students? How does it help outcomes? How does it help you know in terms of equity and access for our students? Uh, what are we asking of faculty? So there's a, a you know kind of answered the basic questions in this proposal and. We scheduled a meeting with several associate deans, as well as we call them department heads. So we have faculty, we have departments within the business school faculty, and each one of the departments has a, a chair. And so we met all together and shared the document in advance. But I think this was, we had people that were advocates, you know, from the dean to the associate deans. And, you know, I think that was a, a big help. And I think another thing that helped was market research that we did within that document to show what other peer and aspirant schools are doing in this space, who is or who is not requiring have a career requirement. And then the last piece of not saying this is what we're going to do, but here are a few options and let's talk about those options. And I think having a conversation like that, it just allows People to feel a little bit more included. And it's not just the career center dictating this is this is the way it is. And from there, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of work that went into that in itself. But then it sort of triggered, okay, well, how do we pilot? How do we start small and then grow from there? And, and we were only in one core class to begin with. And that was, you know, I mentioned all the work that went in beforehand. Like Jessica did an incredible job building relationships with several faculty members, like very strong relationships. And so where did we pilot? We piloted it in one of our classes where she had a really strong relationship and a great advocate in one of those professors, and you know gives us a, a better chance of success starting there. But that's sort of the, the genesis. Jessica, anything else that you want to add from those early days? Yeah,
2: I think it's you know you build the stakeholders, right? We had a lot of data to show that we had a great product, right? Students really appreciated and valued their interactions with us because we had been collecting data all along around advising and workshops and events and things. So we were able to also show that we weren't just asking for time for something that was not of value to students, right? And then the other piece, and this came up through the discussions with the department chairs and with faculty, is that we weren't asking for live class time, right? So at Oregon here, we are on quarters, which means each we have three terms, fall, winter, and spring, and then there's a summer term, which is much smaller in terms of enrollment, But each one is only 10 weeks of content and finals. It goes super fast. And so if we couldn't ask for live class time in every single term of every single section of any given class. And so we built out the asynchronous module so that it could be something that students could do outside of their live class time, but also kind of on their own time. And that also allows us in terms of scale to make sure that every single section of any given course has the same Modules in it. And so again, it's that stakeholder development, really understanding what are the things that are going to be like no-goes, non-starters. And part of a lot of that happened through informal conversations that we had before the proposal, right? Talking to our faculty partners who have been good partners and say, okay, so we're thinking about this. What are some ideas? Like, what do you think? How would you respond to this? What do you think your colleagues would think? Or like, what are some things that might help us pave the way to make it more attractive to them? How can we? Sell it to them, you know those kinds of things. So the stakeholder development was was really really key. And then also just being clear about the trade-offs, right? Jean mentioned we had several options when we went to the the faculty department heads. Any of them could have worked, right? And from our perspective, each one of them had different pros and cons, though different resource requirements to make them happen, and different kinds of things. And so just being very clear about, you know, like there are different choices and there are trade-offs to each one. And which trade-offs are we prepared to make at this time?
0: Yeah, I imagine giving them those choices helped them be more invested in the choice that ended up being made. Um, so you mentioned a lot of, you know, this building partnerships with faculty ahead of time. But I think this is probably a question I imagine our listeners are going to be asking too, is how do you get that buy-in from faculty? How do you convince them to make this part of their their classes, even if it is asynchronous? I'm curious what that process looked like for you.
1: I will just go back to relationships. I mean, I think that's the the foundation of of getting by like if you don't have the relationships with people then i think it's going to be a little bit more challenging and then just noting where are those strong relationships and i think having those earlier conversations and you know is there a way to leverage that person in having other conversations with other faculty members uh, it's like students right like students i can say something to a student Fifteen times, and they can hear it once from an, uh, a fellow student or an alum, and it it impacts them. It hits different. And so, how can you use a faculty member with whom you have a strong relationship, and can that person reach out to other faculty members, perhaps, or join the conversation, be an advocate in that conversation? I think it's just also mapping out who. Every institution is a little bit different, and understanding who are the influencers, who has that you know, quote unquote power in the institution. And I think mapping that out and understanding who that is for us, I think department heads, the dean's office obviously, um, but then, you know, we also knew that uh, we heard from the department heads that course coordinators, which are individual people that are coordinating those courses and all the faculty members, they were gonna play a role in this. And then another group that we haven't talked about, we have a an, an undergraduate program committee, and that was another layer but I think it's mapping out like, where do we start? Who do we talk to first and how do we start to build and sort of snowball this, you know, and and have it grow and gain momentum. But, you know, fundamentally, I think it it comes back to the relationships that you hold with faculty members. And, you know, fortunately for us, we had some good ones coming into the conversation, some very strong ones. And, and also the relationship with the Dean's office, I think with the various deans, associate deans from faculty side, from administrative side, them wanting career ready students, I think uh, was a huge part of getting this, you know, pushing that that snowball down the hill to have a gain momentum. Yeah. And I understand, you know, like it, every institution is different. And, and, you know, I think we're explaining what it is that happened for us and and how that works. And I think everyone's going to have to, you know, figure out what does that look like for you and your college, your university, um, your school. So
0: cool. Jessica, anything else you want to add to that?
2: I mean, the only other thing on a a more sort of granular level is that we're not asking them for anything. I mean, we're asking them to maybe rearrange the course points a little bit, but we're doing all the work. We're not asking for class time. We're not asking them to grade any assignments. We're taking that on ourselves We're managing what the content is in these things, so we're not asking them to become experts in career readiness. We made it as easy as possible at the class level and made it clear that we are not putting more work on them, right? And in fact, what we've heard from faculty is that this actually makes it easier for me because now I don't have to be responsible for knowing, like if a student comes to me to ask about career stuff. Like, I don't have to be an expert. I don't feel like I have to be an expert in that. Um, One of our faculty members also says that, you know, like clubs and different organizations come to him all the time to ask for time in the class to do announcements. And and he knows it's very valuable. But now that we have career fundamentals, there is an avenue um, in that particular class. We do weekly announcements for them. And so that's where all of those things go into the canvas announcements. So it makes it easier for him that he doesn't have to then manage all those things or he doesn't have to build these things into his class. And again, this is somebody who's a big advocate who is really has a personal story about how college really changed his career trajectory and prospects and, you know, socioeconomic status. If we weren't doing it, he would be doing it. But now he gets to have us as the experts in this field do it so then he can focus his class on the core content for the class. So. Anyway, in terms of the buy-in, it's really about saying this isn't going to be more work for you. And also it may reduce some of the work outside of your your natural scope that you might have had to work with before.
0: Okay. I'm glad you mentioned the grading because I'm curious how that works. So who does the grading if it's not the professors?
2: Yes, uh, we do. (laughs) So there's a short answer, which is the machine does it. The longer answer is the machine does it and then we do some follow-up. So in some of these classes, we may have... 1,500, 1,800 students going through the assignments at a time in a given term, okay? So what we have done is we've set them up in Canvas, and this might get a little wonky, but we've set them up as graded surveys, which means if a student submits anything, they get the points. What we then do is Depending on the assignment, we'll go back and either spot check and see what people are, are writing or for some of the assignments, we can go and verify through a different way that they've done what we have asked them to do. In the earlier classes, the stakes are a little lower so and, and those are the massive classes. So those we aren't as careful about in terms of like looking at every single one. In the higher upper division course, we are much more Meticulous about making sure that students are doing what we ask them to do. And we're not asking them to do a lot, right? In BA 101, it might be watch this video about the career decision making cycle and then answer this quiz for understanding, right? And a little reflection, maybe type up a little reflection piece, right? So again, it's not something that would be, we're not looking for right or wrong answers. We're not looking for things that are objectively correct. What we are doing is looking for uh, students to just pause and think about this stuff. For some of the assignments, like for example, in that sophomore level class, we do ask students to attend a career event sometime during the term. That can be a career fair, that can be one of our events that we put on, that can be one of the many webinars that's coming through on Handshake that employers are putting out there, those virtual events. And each term we have more than 100 events. So there's, there's a lot of choice for students there in terms of what might work for their schedule and how to access them and interest so with that, what we do is we say, here's the list of students. I pull a report from Handshake and say, who's checked into an event? And if they've checked into an event, I assume that it's good. And then for those maybe 20% of students who don't have the check-in in Handshake, we actually have our student assistants, our career peer educators. We have a couple of them that are trained to help evaluate these things. So they go through and what the students have to do is upload a screenshot of the event that they went to, screenshot or photo. And so then the our student staff then goes through and checks that. 20%. And if there are ones that look suspicious, then they flag those and I will write a message to them and ask them to please resubmit or, or whatever it is, right? So we try to, as much as possible, build in the assignments in a way that we can verify with a, at sort of a mass level um, that they've done, what we've asked them to do. And so then the individual things that we're doing are, are more targeted. We're not looking at every single screenshot. In the upper division courses, we have, again, career peer educator who is trained to read those reflections. She has, you know, sort of stock comments and feedback, but we do try to give a lot more feedback at that level to show a closer connection with them. It's a smaller scale. In in that one, we're running about 650 students per year through that course, so it's a little bit more manageable. Um, But still, with that, she drafts them, and I just sort of review them to make sure everything looks good, and then she posts them, so... It's a little mix of machines, humans, looking at every single thing, looking at only a select, you know, identifying which things might be problematic and looking at those. And again, for each of these, it's not a huge portion of their course. So we try, like I have to say, even just putting one point toward anything in the class, we see a change in student behavior, right? And so what we're talking about here is like three or four percent of a course grade being assigned to these career readiness activities so it's not going to necessarily change their grade in the class but it could take them from like a b to a b plus or you know somewhere in that range and so the the specificity of the grading and the individual individualization of the grading i think is is more important at that 300 level class In the other classes it's not as high stakes
0: So I want to be mindful of our time here because I know we're already a little over, so I'll start kind of wrapping us up. But first, I want to ask, what advice do you both have for other career leaders who maybe want to launch a program like you're doing or embed career more in classrooms and make it more of that requirement?
1: I would say that firstly, just to really understand the culture of your institution. You know, we talked about sort of the working with faculty, working with you know, the Dean's office for us um, and understanding the dynamics, the relationships, the politics that exist in a place. And and I think just mapping that out a little bit and understanding, have a, a better understanding of that I think is is important to know where you can lean in, where can you start, who might be the ones where you're gonna have to work perhaps a little bit harder to to get on board. Just I think identifying that And then a couple other basic things about just, you know, proposals is having a very clear understanding of what it is that you're wanting to do. And then knowing even, you know, how will you know that it's working? I think basic questions that people will want to know and having thought that out doesn't have to be the final answer, at least having a, a place to begin the conversation. And then for us is, you know, I think it was important to have done some research around what are other peer schools doing? or not doing in this space. I think uh, I sometimes don't care about that. If it's a good idea and it's good for students and other schools are doing it great, if they're not doing okay. But I think there are some administrators that really look at that and they want to know if it's being done or not. So I think that's important to do. And maybe I should have started with the thought of talking to students and really hearing from them and understanding understanding them a little bit more in relation to what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think student voice is not only important, but very influential with in your conversations with administrators. It carries weight. And so I think not just because you think it's a good idea, but because students have told you X, Y, or Z. Those are a few things.
2: Yeah. I'm so glad you said students. Cause yes, that's really where it starts with and not just surveying students, but actually talking to them and listening to them and really hearing, okay, what are the barriers that you're facing or what are the things, how do you decide how you spend your time? How do you decide, you know, what are the different things that you're looking at and, and what are the things that are a priority for you? What are the things that keep you up at night? Um, and so really not assuming that you even know the questions to ask. And so like, that interview process really can unearth a lot of things that you might not be aware of at all, right? That's one thing. I think the the other thing that I would think about is sort of the crawl, walk, run. Don't feel like you have to start with everything and starting with something where you can prototype, right? Test something out, get feedback from that, iterate, adjust, and use that as an opportunity to see what might work at a little bit smaller scale. So then you can be confident when you're taking it to 1,500, 1,800 students in a term, that this is something that has been vetted and that there's some real value there, right? I had a colleague who would say, don't try to boil the ocean, right? We're not trying (laughs) to do everything at once. We're not doing it. We're not looking at a problem that's impossible. We're taking one chunk at a time and moving it forward. I think that's one thing, you know, with the timing, we started in the fall of 2020. And if you remember, there was a lot going on in the world. Yes, there was. (laughs) One of the big benefits at that time, though, was that people were letting go of This idea that something had to be perfect when you launched, especially things having to do with video or asynchronous or online or those kinds of things. Everybody was just like, we got to throw something up there, right? We had let go of this idea that there had to be a certain status or had to have a certain production quality. And that gave us a lot of freedom, frankly, to play. And to experiment with things and to try stuff out. And for the first year, like all of the videos were recorded in my dining room, right? Because that's where I was. And you know, so having that freedom to be able to just try stuff. So we tell our students all the time, just try stuff. And that's where we had good faculty partners who were willing to experiment with us and willing to go down that road to then build on that and to make it a more sort of systematic thing. But that initial sort of prototype play stage I think it's really important
0: too. Right. Cause you all started with one class, right?
1: Yeah. And Jessica, you, I love that point you brought up about like not letting perfection get in the way of progress. And, you know, with everything that we've talked about today, like this is our version of that. And it's working for us. Like it's not perfect. And I think we realize that, but we want to make an impact on students and we're going to look at the data to tweak things and make things better. For everyone listening, we might have said some things that are deal breakers for you. And that's fine. You know, I think everyone just needs to figure out, like, what are the things that you want to improve and make progress on and design around that? There's some things like some of you might be listening and going, This is awesome. I want to do exactly what they talked about. Great. Get in touch with us. For others, you know, the answer was no because of X, Y, or Z. That's great. Well, not great, but like, I think everyone just needs to figure out what it is that's going to work for you and what you want to design for your students at your institution. I think the reality is just careers and students, it's, just going to, the connections and the topic is going to become more and more relevant and more important for us. And I know that there's a tension there between career services and outcomes and, oh, we can't, it's not placement and we don't have control over X, Y, Z. Yeah, I fully understand that. But the reality is, this conversation is not going anywhere. And I think we need to be on the forefront. We need to be thinking about things. We need to be having these kinds of conversations and you to you connect for, you know, even the, the idea and the theme of career everywhere, it's important that we're leading that conversation as opposed to being reactive. And so, you know, the question for everyone else listening is what is it that you're doing for your students? Because those questions are going to get asked if they haven't been. And I think we don't want to be in a reactive place and instead leading on the front foot and saying, this is what we're not waiting for and being dictated to, but instead this is what we wanna do for our students because that's what's important and we want our students to be successful. Um, and so I, I, that's that's the encouragement of, of not waiting for perfect conditions because I don't know, last time I checked, that's just, it's not gonna happen, so yeah.
0: I love that, well said. Like, and I imagine it's also nice for you too to know that if someone asks you that question, what are you doing for students? You can say, here's this program, here's this data, I can show you exactly what we're doing for students.
1: Yeah. I mean Jessica's been here for 15 plus years and me for 5 and but having this formalized in that I talked about the undergraduate program committee and it is it is a formal piece of that and if either one of us is gone tomorrow and not working here, you know, this is sort of a a program that Will stay in existence for a while, and I think that's awesome. Something really to be proud of, and the team's working incredibly hard, and, and they they deserve uh, any the credit that comes this way. So that's huge,
0: and
2: we're not done yet. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, practice makes progress, right? And also, like we talked about, these are the fundamentals. This is the floor, right? This is not it's necessary, but not sufficient. It's not where we we're done. Now we checked off the box. Students will be great, right? Like this is a a way to start and to grow other things as well and look for opportunities for greater and deeper engagement with students. Because really, that's what they're here for. And so Career Services, I really see as our, we are where higher ed makes good on the promise of social mobility, right? Socioeconomic mobility and the population that we work with, we're a public school. We have a lot of students where this, I mean, Gina and I were just talking last week. It's like this experience here is changing generations of opportunity. Like we are making a big impact on the ability for those students to change the life for themselves and for their kids and and whatever, right? So that piece of it being tied to outcomes, it's not just about the prestige for the institution or rankings or, you know, the things that are sort of those extrinsic motivators. For me, it comes back to what are the student stories? What are the things that they really are looking for from their experience here? And all of those things align, right? Like, you know, from an institutional perspective, we want to have better career outcomes for a variety of reasons. And then also the individual students and families want those better outcomes as well.
0: Sounds like you're well on your way to making a lot of positive impact on that front. So before I kind of, again, finish wrapping this up, is there anything else you'd like to add? I feel like we've touched on a lot of really great stuff in this conversation.
1: Just reach out to us, I suppose, if if you have questions. um, Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dive deeper into some of these areas. And so let us know.
0: Uh, If people would like to reach out to you, what's a good way for them to do that?
1: You can probably maybe just find me on LinkedIn and we can start there and then move to you know to email after that.
0: Yeah, LinkedIn or email, either one. Um,
2: full disclosure, I don't use LinkedIn as a communication tool very often. And so sometimes those in, those messages can sit in the inbox for a while, but email for sure, LinkedIn eventually, yes.
1: You can find us on our new website, At uh, We work with Uconnect to create an awesome new website and just scroll down to the bottom, meet the team, and you can find us there. Um, really happy with with what our, our new website is doing, for students, So
0: Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes so everyone can go check out their new website and uh, see those emails. So to close us out here, I want to do uh, this answer a question, leave a question thing I've been doing in all of our past episodes. So I'll ask you a question that our last guest left for you, and then you'll leave a question for the next guest. So our last guest was Laura Kestner Ricketts of Augustana College. And she had a pretty specific question. She wants to know how you're addressing the use of ChatGPT with students around job search materials.
2: I'll take this one. And I'm really glad that you said the questions ahead of time because this would have been a hard one to answer <laughs> in real time. You know, ChatGPT is the latest iteration of this whole machines taking over our jobs and our lives, right? Well, it is a new, fairly new thing. It's also part of a pattern or a trend that we've seen for a while and and things that we've talked with students about in terms of artificial intelligence, human intelligence. What are the things that the two different kinds of things are good at and how can you as a human understand and promote the value that you add as a human that machines can't do, right? So it's part of that larger conversation. Um, Short answer is we don't have anything like systematic or, you know, like we're not putting on our website anything about how to use chat GPT. I will say, though, I did an informal poll of our student employees, which is, by the way, if you don't have student employees, get them because it's a great way to keep a you know, a beat on, on what students are doing. And I said, do you have friends who are using chat GPT for their job search? They're like, oh, yeah, I have lots of friends who have been writing cover letters for chat GPT. And it's not so much that they are just taking what the bot creates and submitting it, but they're using it as a way to save time to get a first draft. Right. So here's where you know, I don't want to stare at a blank page. I'm going to put this in here. They'll give me something that at least I can start with. Right. So, you know, as we're thinking about this, a lot of what we talk about around career readiness, but also the sort of personal branding or how do you put yourself out there? We talk a lot about storytelling. Stories are things that people remember. And we talk a lot about the preparation that it takes to to be able to then perform well in an interview or in the job. Right. So with storytelling, that's something that the chat gpt is not so good at right because they don't have all of the context and it's really kind of impossible to give them all of the context to be able to pull that out and with cover letters in particular we really emphasize diving deep into a couple of stories and not just like taking your resume bullet points and putting them into a paragraph format which is what chat gpt does right like it can pull that over and do that pretty quickly so the storytelling piece is something that that you as a human can really add color to but again, with a draft, at least you can it can help to sort of highlight what might be some key skills or strengths that you want to highlight through stories. And the other thing we talk with students about a lot of times is, you know, like nobody's ever required to read your cover letter. So it could be possible that it's all just an exercise for you anyway. But what it can be a really good exercise in is helping you articulate and craft your value proposition, how do you want to tell that story when it comes to an interview? How can you use the cover letter as a tool to help prepare your pitch for yourself? And so again, even if you have a bot do that, that's not part of your learning process or part of your preparation process. So those are a couple of things that we have, um, that we talk about with students when it comes up. But yes, it definitely is part of this larger trend of, okay, the machines are coming for our jobs. What are we going to (laughs) do?
1: So Meredith, I just put the prompt into ChatGPT. And it ends with, in all of these scenarios, career services staff can use AI as a tool to enhance their work with students. It's important to note that AI should not replace the expertise of career services staff, but rather complement it by providing additional insights and information.
0: Well, there you go, straight from ChatGPT itself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this has been an interesting conversation in the content marketing space as well. Like, how do you use it? When do you use it? Is it weird to use it? So it's interesting to hear how that's playing out in career services as well. So what question would you two like to leave for the next guest?
1: Oh, yeah, I've got a um, pretty serious, important question, uh, especially for career services. So the question is, is a hot dog a sandwich?
0: (laughs) These are the important questions.
1: Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. It's, yeah, I'm like-minded. I appreciate it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, great.
0: Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on the podcast today. This was an incredible conversation, and I'm sorry we went a lot along, but this was just like an hour and nine minutes of straight gold. So,
2: (laughs) well, and thanks for hanging with me on the technical stuff. Sorry it took so long, but hey, we made it through, so it's good.
0: That's all right. There's always some kind of tech issue. All right. Well, thank you both again, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. That's all for this episode of Career Everywhere. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.